production. G'day, Scott here. I hope you're enjoying The Good Oil. Normally, we're going to bring you brand new conversations, but today, I want to bring you uh, a repeat, a reminder, maybe a re-listen of a conversation I had with Rebecca Huntley. Now, she is a spectacularly smart and thoughtful lady who has a really interesting insight into politics and particularly how polling impacts those politics. The things that we say, the things that we do. This conversation, by the way, uh, was a conversation that we had, well, in a previous government, a previous time, uh, back when we had a different party in power. It was in January 2022, but it's every bit as relevant today. Some of the issues have been fought. Some of the races have been run and done, as they say. But I think you're going to enjoy listening again to the chat I had with Rebecca Huntley. Enjoy. G'day, I'm Scott Phillips, the Chief Investment Officer of The Motley Fool and the host of The Good Oil Podcast. Now, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the phrase, particularly if you're new, but giving someone the good oil is giving them the good stuff, the important stuff and the real stuff. And that's the aim of our podcast. We're bringing you conversation with entrepreneurs, executives and experts, people who know what's going on and the people who make things happen. And today's guest is someone who really, really knows what's going on. In fact, she spent much of her professional career trying to answer exactly that question. As a student, a researcher, demographer, author, speaker, and lots more, Rebecca Huntley, welcome to The Good Oil. Scott, thank you so much for having me. Mate, you're very kind to join us. I really, I've been looking forward to this conversation for ages, so thank you for making the time. Uh, we'll, try and, we'll try and get as much out of you as we can. I don't know how we're going to do it in 45 minutes, but we'll do our level best. So I'm going to start very simply. Uh, a demographer's job is often to reflect a society back to itself and to answer the question, who are we? Which is convenient because the last article I saw from you is one you'd written for Australian Traveller and which you titled, Who Are We As A Nation? And you included the subtitle, Here Is What The Hard Times Have Revealed. Now, let, let's start with that. A really simple first question, just, you know, just to introduce it just, just quickly. Who exactly are we, Rebecca? Oh, well, this is it's interesting and I'm, it's funny that you mentioned that article because um, that made me reflect on and nobody likes to recognise this because we like to think we're iconoclastic and we like to think that we take the piss out of we, of people and we do. That's, that is the, that's one of the things I love about Australians are just so much part of the Australian spirit. But really we do what we're told largely, you know. We, we do what we're told and... We often don't. We often don't necessarily always um, come up with. We're not very inventive necessarily about what we do. But if we're told, go off and get vaccinated, we pretty much do in extraordinary numbers, really quickly, and in a way where we don't even need to be paid to do it. I mean, in countries where we've got our vaccination, other countries, in European countries, they had to pay people to get vaccinated. In Australia, we just go, oh, got to get vaccinated for everybody. Okay, we'll do it. I mean, there's a few people who like to protest, but the vast majority of us do what we're told by the government, which, um, as one dear friend of mine who came from Singapore once said to me, she just couldn't understand why a country that prided itself on being kind of um, rebellious was actually so authoritarian and so kind of compliant, but also liked to to take the piss out of people, out of leaders. And she said, is it because so many of you are convicts? (laughs) Because you used to just, you know... um, quietly make jokes about the people that were leading you, but at the same time you pretty much had to do what you were told. So I thought that was fascinating. And there's good things about it. We realise that there is a community benefit if we all do something. 
the introduction of seatbelts in Australia was largely uncontroversial. In other countries, there were people refused to wear seatbelts. You know, they would, would what would they have called them? Anti-freedom straps or something. <laughs> Don't you think? Can you imagine the progress? In other countries? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. RBT, the same, right? Random breath testing. It was kind of yeah. a big deal when it was first discussed and then it just simply became, well, of course you would because we don't want drunk people driving and so it became really quickly. I mean, it was it was a little bit disquiet at the very beginning but really quickly we went to, no, it's fine. The other thing I wanted to, so that anxiety thing you mentioned, I'm glad you did because that stuck out to me in the article you wrote and I'm, I, I, I've got two competing thoughts in my head. One is either, the question is either, when did we stop being she'll be right, no worries to, oh my God, I'm worried about everything or did we ever, were we ever that or was that just a national mythology? Is this anxiety new? Is it worse? What, what's, what's happening there? The she'll be right, mate, stuff, is that, is that one of the other kind of competing tensions in Australia which is around complacency, around this kind of idea of, of that the the complications and the intensity of the world is a bit beyond us and, more importantly, a bit beyond our, our leaders. <laughs> so we think we might be able to deal with it, but whoever, the jokers in Parliament can't. But so we kind of go, oh, well, I suppose it'll be all right. Let's go back to you for a second. Uh, I don't know how you've managed to do as many things in your short professional life. Um, I've I, I read some profiles of you in various places. You've been a PhD student, demographer, author, act, uh, activist, campaigner for a yes vote in the referendum. You're a speaker. Uh, so let's go right back to the beginning. How does Rebecca Huntley become a demographer? What, what's, what, what, what kind of go, you know what, I really want to do that for a job. Well, I think as you know, and as most people know, sometimes you just stumble into something and it suits you. So... My parents both educators, my mother was a teacher, my father was an academic and I really enjoyed school and I lo- but I even I loved university and um, I liked the idea of writing and teaching and researching, so I liked all of those things. It was clear at the time that I finished my PhD that academia was, and we've seen it happen now, universities continuously be funded. It didn't like, kind of matter how good you good a PhD you had. It was, you didn't kind of go straight into a job. Um, there was a real change um, in, and I was the gen- first generation where that changed. It would have been unheard of in my father's generation to have a PhD, books and years of teaching and not be able to find a position in university, but that was the case. So I kind of thought, oh, I'm not quite sure if this is for me. And then I went to um, a lunch and was sitting next to Hugh McKay and um, obviously, <laughs> and it was a bit of a fluke. Sliding doors right there. Yeah, and it was, it was. <laughs> and we just got to talking at the time. I had just started um, researching and writing a book on Generation Wise. It was my first book, kind of looking and understanding young Australians. And very, very lucky to kind of have him as a early mentor and guide. And um, that's what happened. And I suppose the other stuff that I was interested in doing, which was writing, flowed out of that. Um, and yeah, I've been very ex- extraordinarily fortunate in my career in that way. You've also been you've also been a high achiever, which uh, you tend to create the fortune that you end up uh, benefiting from if you're in that sort of scenario. Mate, um, we th- there's a phrase I've always been fascinated by. And it's the stories we tell ourselves. A lot of that is that thing of you know we've kind of created the. Or, not even necessarily fake stories, but we just adopted the stories as part of our identity, the Anzac story, the, the Outback Bush story, the Bush Rangers, all that kind of stuff. How much of it is real? How much of, it, how much of what we think about ourselves is real? And how much is how we like to think about what we want to be like? It's a great question. So I think the thing is it's not so much about whether something is real, it's how much space it takes in the larger story. So as somebody who's a hiker, who hikes a lot, there is just something completely and utterly magical about the Australian bush, and we obviously have different kinds of, uh, you know, environments across Australia. 
do the majority of us live there or do even a significant minority of us live there? Do we visit there? Just because we don't all live there and we actually mostly cling to the cling to the coast in suburbs doesn't necessarily mean that that's not an important part of our story. But, you know, how does it get positioned in that larger part of the story? And so what's fascinating to me is um, certainly when I was doing some work around my family history is I had no idea about the ethnic diversity in even... So we, let's, let's set aside Indigenous history for a moment. That In the early waves of people coming to Australia, either as explorers or convicts, it wasn't all white people. You know, we had... You know, we had one of there was an Italian on one of the on on one of Captain Cook's boats. So we, it's the cherry picking and it's the amplification of parts of the story and it's the forgetting of the diversity. And so how do we tell that story? And it's not about, it's not always about pulling down the statues. It's about erecting other statues as well. Um, and I think that that's part of it. And so what is clearly happening quite slowly, um, perhaps not perhaps not necessarily comprehensively and certainly belatedly, is that my daughter and who's 13 and my my twins that are seven are learning and hearing Indigenous stories as part of their curriculum in a way that all I can really remember ever being told is that the Tasmanian Indigenous population was wiped out. That was it. That's all I was really ever told. And I learned the first time I really learned about Indigenous history and culture was when I went to law school and we were learning about Mabo. We were looking at the Mabo case and that was the first time I really was exposed to most of that stuff. Um, it, and so we are slowly shifting and telling new and finding new ways to tell that story and it's it's that's what it is. So the So we're creating a different story off the foundations and off the kind of the, um, it's not that it was wrong, it's just it was a distortion and it was the silences with the, that were the problem. I like that, the stuff that was left out. Mate, um, let, let's go to politics for a second. Well, we'll probably spend a bit of time on politics. We'll try not to get super political, but feel free to, by the way. I'll, I'll ask the question. You can answer as, as, as uh, extremely or otherwise as you want to. The, so here's my take on the last couple of elections. Not even the last couple, maybe the two or three before that. The political dynamic went from, you know, we, we the, the kind of angels, better angels than nature type Obama stuff before he was there, through to, yep, it's terrible. Yes, I know it's terrible. Yes, it's awful. Yes, the economy sucks. Yes, you haven't got a job. I'm really sorry about that, but I'm the guy to fix it. Almost amplifying the negative by by way of providing a solution. Is that is that is that a reasonable review of how politi- political campaigning has changed? Wow, there's so much in that. So I think you go to something that I've, I reflected on when I first started doing my kind of more broad-minded mood research for Ipsos um, in the early days of working with Hugh is that um, one of the things that's really difficult in a society where expectations are high and where the faith in our political leaders and trust in the political our political leaders and democracy to fix big problems is certainly at, in, under threat. And I thought... One of the things that is really difficult for politicians to be able to tap into is this idea that there has to be a general sacrifice for a larger good. Now, that was something that was a common trope in every world war, right? You know, leaders talked about that and largely people followed. They recognised that you needed to have rations and you needed to... All these kinds of things had to happen. You had to work differently. Everything had to change to be able to address things. And there are certain things that that Australians 
want for our society. But the moment politicians try and say, well, in order to have this thing you want, you've got to give up this thing, which everybody knows instinctively you have to do, right? There is a perfect example of this, a really good case study of this is the issue around housing affordability. Like, I started my career researching young Australians and their top issue for them in their lives was housing affordability. That has not changed. That was 20 years ago. It's worse. It is worse. And it almost seems like to defy, you know, how is it that we can be in a situation where during a during a pandemic the median cost of a house in Sydney has increased $7,000 a week? It's not just Sydney. It's regional Australia. There are people with jobs living in their cars because they can't afford to rent, they can't afford to buy. So we've got a situation around housing affordability that is chronic. It's, it's exacerbating already existing extraordinary inequalities in our society. But the moment you say to people, look, we might get rid of something on negative gearing on lots of houses, not retrospectively, but in the future, everybody freaks out. <laughs> so, and, 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 and so we do have a problem of how can we, who, who are we going to have in our society that is going to say, if, we, if the, these are the things we actually want, it means that some things have to change, which means some people are going to have to give something up, not a lot, but enough to be able to make that vision happen. And it is so much harder to convince people that that is doable and it's so much harder for our leaders, who are really the people that have the capacity to do that, to influence people. So you, you, so as you said, it's it's harder and harder for them to tap into our, our better angels and it's so much easier saying... You're doing it, you know, you're paying more for petrol, you're paying more for bananas, woe is me. And just just feeding that, just stoking that negativity without a lot of suggestions about how to change it, right? Nobody nobody thinks that really the Prime Minister can do much about petrol prices or about milk, that he can do things about other stuff. But, you know, so, so feeding that dissatisfaction, woe is me, poor me, and... and it's absolutely no. There is no doubt that people are, um, are, you know, and that phrase "doing it tough" and "cost of living" and all the rest of it. It is really, you know. So this is a very, you know. So it is one of those things. I mean, I genuinely do. You genuinely do meet people who are really finding it extraordinarily difficult in precarious employment, in precarious um, housing, d- dealing with things like. Um, uh, underlying in chronic illness, complex care arrangements, issues around loneliness, issues around all the rest of it. Um, and then you get people who are nowhere near all of that stuff um, and talk about doing it tough largely because, well, maybe because they've got much, much higher expectations of what the rewards of hard work should look like, but also because they are potentially working really hard. Australians are working hard. So un- untangling that is really difficult. Having a nuanced conversation about is that difficult. So it's so much easier as a politician to say, you know, um, all of your costs have gone up under this guy or this person and you vote for me and vote for me and I'll fix it. And then it's just, just a cycle. And then, the, and then the other party goes, your costs have gone up about that guy. And, you know, so it just goes in and without any kind of effective ways to address it.
Mate, I don't want to badmouth focus groups to a demographer because that's uh, that's not very nice. But no, 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 you can because they're not all. <laughs> well, here's the thing. I and again, it's probably rose-coloured glasses. But if I think about the prime ministers I've known in my life when I've been aware of it, um, Bob Hooke, Paul Keating, John Howard were out-and-out conviction politicians. Love them or hate them, they were conviction politicians. Kevin Rudd, you could take a bet either way. And it strikes me that even but since then, maybe including Rudd, maybe excluding Rudd. Even those politicians who had convictions happily sacrificed them to the focus group, to the polling, to the whatever was needed. There's not, you know, the vision thing that Keating talked about. Um, again, Keating and Howard, very, very different visions, but both knew what they wanted Australia to be. I'm not sure we've had a leader express that or govern accordingly since. Is that too jaundiced of you? No, 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 not at all. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot in that. So the first thing I would say is that is that it was, what it was is one of a number of inputs in the decision that they would make on any one issue. So, for example, if you ta- let's just take John Howard. If John Howard had done a whole lot of polling and focus groups of his own base, particularly in regional Australia, about gun control, he would have been like, "Oh, this could be. Oh, wow. Okay, they wouldn't. They wouldn't like it. They wouldn't." And instead, he just was like, he knew that, and he thought the larger issue was more important and I can carry the day and we'll just address, we'll find ways to address this concern in this group, right? Now, on other issues, he might have made a different kind of call, right? Um, Certainly people I know that did that work for people like Hawke and Keating is that they would deliver their results and they would be told, thank you very much, and it would just be one of a range of different things that would be part of the consideration set. And, of course... In order to in order to make that judgment call, you've got to have both um, a sense of what it is you where you really are going. Like where do you want to land? And both Hawke and Keating had it. What is it actually that matters? So you you've got a strategic mind. Like what am I prepared not to go? Like not to be crazy brave on, or what am I pe- prepared to compromise on? And that might shift. Um, so. So it's so it's it is about conviction and values, but it's also about just effective strategy. What am I supposed? And and where can I? And also where can I take people? How far can I take them? Right. So I think that's it. So how it's all the GST, right? Exactly. No, no, no. I think that's exactly right. He also knew that if he just put he crash or crash through, and that Australians, given we're so compliant, <laughs> would just be oh now I've got to pay the now we've got to pay the GST or whatever. You know what I mean? Oh I don't want it. I don't want it. Oh whatever. And which interestingly is exactly what happened with the carbon tax. Yes. Oh totally. That's a great example too. So everybody complained, and I tell you, literally the moment it arrived, not a word was spoken about it in a focus group. Not a word. And when it was gotten wow, rid of... that's fascinating. And, and when it was gotten rid of, not a word was spoken of it about then either. People did not celebrate. Women didn't suddenly start ironing more than they did previously. <laughs> I can guarantee you. <laughs> I can guarantee Refer- you. Referencing, of course, so, the, uh, the housewife yeah, comment from Tony. Exactly. Yeah, so so okay. I, think, I think you're right. I think the other thing we have to recognise is now, and we all know it, there is now such an explosion of opinion-based technology. And this is the, prob- this is the problem, right? You could get up and announce a climate target as an opposition leader, and within 24 hours there are 17 polls measuring it all. That's bad for policy because you can't, and I don't know how to stop that because the technology is there. How do you measure opinion when people have just been told something and they haven't gone on a journey of persuasion around it and what that looks like? 
And so and so what has happened, and you know, I, I, I feel for leaders in this, is what has happened for the the bandwidth of persuasion, right? This is what we're gonna do and this is how we're gonna do it, has it's look, it's contracted to, you know, a sliver. Once upon a time before you had the ability to poll every single person and, you know, measure how it was happening on Twitter. You had a couple of months of grace to be able to say, can we land this? Is this possible? And, you know, it didn't mean that, that, that if there wasn't a big public reaction to something or some kind of problem that there wouldn't be some backsliding, but at least people felt like I've got a bit of oxygen and a bit of space to see if I can get people across the line. And I think that that was better for policy. It was also better for people saying that their leaders were prepared to stick to something for a while. Um, and try so it was just a it was it was a less crowded less intense less um, distracted environment and actually as in you know it's interesting Scott I was in um, I was in Parliament House a couple of weeks ago um, taking some meetings and spending some some of my you know it sounds like some of my best friends are politicians like some of my best <laughs> friends are used car salesmen anyway <laughs> and right. one of these despite that you're a good person yeah. exactly and one of um, <laughs> one of my dear friends from student politics who still is now a member of parliament he said to me there's something about this place and there's something about this job that's like institutionalized ADHD it's like you can never you're never allowed to focus on a particular thought for too long and it's all this kind of stuff coming at you. And how do you, it's very, very stressful, how, even if the best of possible intentions and an ironclad set of values, how do you navigate that kind of crowded environment? Um, very hard. Like we, we all have that a bit to, to a greater or lesser extent if we work and have children and everything and just, just times it by a thousand and so... Um, I don't know what the solution is particularly um, other than um, I mean, there's lots of things we can do to improve the quality of democracy, improve the media environment in which and the way that journalists do their work and what they focus on and what they don't. It requires a whole of society um, approach to saying we want serious people to make serious decisions and we want to make sure that that that's it that environment that they're in and the broader environment, which has always been challenging, um, is is as free of the BS as it possibly can be. I don't know how to do that, but, you know. Part of it is also me saying sometimes you should just ignore this, this, ignore these polls for a while, just ignore. I mean, part of me is also saying perhaps you shouldn't listen to people like me all the time. I'm just one of a group of people that you should listen to. Don't think that just because this is unpopular in a survey or a couple of groups means giving up. What it should be is it should point to, if you really are committed to this being a thing, what is it that you have to work on? What are the anxieties or barriers that are people, or who, who are the groups of people you need to win? Not, oh, we just have to give up. I love that. It sounds like our system needs to somehow produce some more conviction politicians. I don't know where they come from because they spend their lives learning to be focus group politicians maybe rather than that, and that's the that's the hard part. Hey, um, I want to get to climate change, mate, because your, your more recent um, conversations, authorship, uh, activism, if I can call that, I'm not sure if that's fair or not, um, has been around climate change. And what I what I love, mate, I love the book that you wrote, and I, it was a really great book, but I also love the title because the title's important, right? Um social media, we've just been finished talking about that. And social media is about yelling at each other about what I think. And we, we kind of lost the art of actually trying to change people's minds. As I, you know, somehow it's like if I, if I just yell my thing louder, 
eventually I'll convince the other guy, right? And so you, you wrote the book, which is called How to Talk About Climate Change in a Way That Makes a Difference. And those last, was it five, six words, are so dramatically important um, because otherwise we're shouting past each other. And so maybe, I mean, look, our listeners should just read the book because it's a great book, but um, just give this as a podcast and, and we've got to have something of, of value from the book specifically. So they've <laughs> got a reason to go and buy it if they haven't, I'm sure they have already. But um, what, what, I mean, what's, t- t- tell us about a couple of the key takeaways. I mean, it goes not just to climate change, it goes to everything, right? The whole idea of oppositional argument and shouting past each other is, is across the whole political spectrum on every topic. Well, but how, how do you, how do you talk about climate change in a way that does make a difference? How, how can we change some minds, I guess, is the way I'm asking the question? Yeah, and and look, by way of kind of going into a couple of the fundamental principles, which are are no different than, as you know, the general principles of effective communication, but climate change is a bit of a rarefied part of that because it's been so politicised. It's like scary science, expert knowledge, highly politicised, big issue, overwhelming, In you know, all of those things. It's like it's a hot mess of (laughs) issues. But let me let me I'll come come into some of those principles through an anecdote, which is um, you know every now and then you really respond extremely well to a question that gets thrown at you in a context. And I had uh, last year been asked to go and speak to a whole lot of state politicians, so the caucus of a particular of a probably yes of a particular political party, and. Um, I turn up and, and, you know, it was quite a big turn up to hear me talk about the book and a particular politician who represents a seat where there traditionally is still lots of coal, although less as time goes on, sitting right at the front. He's a really nice guy, but he was like right at the front. Right? He was ready like what and you is knew this? who was boring a hole yeah, for you, like, right, while you talking. I knew what electric he represented and um, he's sitting right at the front and um, mm-hmm. I said, any questions? And his hand shot up and he said, well, you know, if you came to my electorate and you came to the RSL, what would you what would you say to people? Like, how would you convince them? What would be your climate change spell? And I said to him, look, you know, with all due respect, I would never come in to a community that I'm not part of and lecture them about climate science, first of all, because I'm not a climate scientist. But what I could do, I could facilitate a conversation of the people in that community about the kind of society they want to live in and the kind of community they want. What are their fears and hopes? What are the things that they want to protect? What are the things that they want to have? What are their aspirations? And what does happiness, well-being, future prosperity look like in that community? And then I can guarantee you that solutions to climate change, whether they be nature-based or renewable energy, could be part of whatever that future is. But you don't start by telling people (laughs) what they want. You start by listening to them about how they feel, what what their fears, aspirations and concerns are, and you find a way to create a process where collaboratively they can move towards that. And I just know that because of, not just because of where we need to go with climate change, but where the global economy is going and where the smart money is going, that renewable energy in particular or nature-based solutions or whatever or, you know, better electric car infrastructure or all the other things, you know, that are going to be of value in relation to climate change but also going to be valuable to that community now, today, for a whole range of reasons, could be part of that solution. So I think what was interesting in his question was that he just assumed that 
people who care about climate change like to lecture other people about how they should think and feel. <laughs> I think and they I, do a little bit just quietly. <laughs> and I get that. No, 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 but I get that. That is, that is, that. I mean, it's it's sometimes an unfair characterisation, but it's a not. It's not based on nothing, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's how they feel. Oh, it's the... It's the Bob Brown climate convoy in the last election. As you're talking about coming to a community, telling this stuff, taking a Tasmanian Green Centre into, into, into rural Queensland and saying, you guys don't know what you're talking about. Um, in that context, at least, I mean, we know, in, we know in hindsight it was a bad idea, but even as you describe it, I'm like, oh, man, <laughs> you know, it outlines that perfectly. One last question before we get to the, the kind of last four fun questions that we ask all of our guests, and this kind of takes us full circle a little bit, back to the politics, back to the anxiety, back to, well, and then incorporates climate change as well. We know 80% of us want change. We know 80% of us want action on climate, roughly. I don't know what the most up-to-date numbers are, but there's something like that is my latest understanding. And yet we have one political party who simply chooses not to care and another party who chooses to care but not enough to actually scare the horses. Um, we, we, you know, we have the the, the, the coalition um, allegedly signed up to net zero by 2050, but a, but a weak 2030 target. Labor, who says it's all important, but they signed up to a target that most people say is not enough anyway. That feels like they feel like they're kind of being wedged somewhere in between. I'm not going to make excuses for them because, you know, at some point you've got to be responsible for your principles. But you've got these two parties, neither of whom doing what 80% of us say we want done. Now, I'm going to assume that's just because at the end of the day we care but not enough to change our votes. But even if we did, right now, short of voting green or independent, there's no one to vote for if you think, hey, neither of these two are getting it. To your point about we can get everyone, if 80% of us want action, if we get to 90% by those really thoughtful conversations about many people where they're at, it still wouldn't change anything unless we're prepared to change our votes or unless one of the political parties finds a bit of, I'll be, I'll be critically, a bit of backbone, a bit of principle, um, and one of them is doing better than the other. I'm not going to pretend they're the same, but neither is really embracing it. Is there, I mean, <laughs> here's the impossible question to answer. How do we solve for that? So one of the um, really problematic aspects of what's happened with um, with the kind of cli- toxic climate politics at the federal level is that people don't, while they know that they should vote on the things that matter to them, voting a particular way in an election on climate seems like a very kind of imperfect tool to to tell people that you're concerned about climate. Particularly if you let say, let's say you voted for Kevin Rudd because you're concerned about climate, then he gets knocked over by his party. <laughs> On climate, you you might have voted for Malcolm. You might have voted for Malcolm Turnbull because you thought he was the best possible conservative prime minister to have that cared about climate, and he got knocked over as well. So I mean, this is this is one of the challenges. So we're finding that there's a bit of a disconnect between voting behaviour and the things that matter to me. So people are looking for other things. I mean, that is why that if you actually you happen to be in a seat like Warringah at the last election, where suddenly you had a real choice and there was a real contrast. You might have had more people think actually voting on climate is a real... This is my opportunity to use my vote to send a message that climate matters to me. But that is not something... Exactly. So that is not that is not always an option for everybody, is it? So 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 what we're seying is more and more people looking for other alternatives. And and I think one I mean that's good that it's it's not always just about voting every four years. But also I think the other thing that's really um, uh, you know, important to it, one of the things I also worry about is that people are giving up on the political system as a way to solve this problem, and that's a problem because even the most powerful 
people in business who are moving towards acting on climate say we need the policy settings to be able to do it effectively. So we absolutely need a whole of whole of community approach. The BCA is the Business Council of Australia is to the left of Labor and, and the Coalition on Climate, which is which is weird. Mate, Tom, let's we, we're running out of time. But thank you for being so generous with Tom. I really appreciate it. Let's go to our last four questions. Uh, I don't know if you if you're a reader or a streamer, uh, but one of the fun questions we like to ask is what are you reading or watching at the moment? What's capturing your attention when it comes to entertainment? Uh, so I don't watch a lot of TV because I'm really so like I, I have three kids and a dog and a big but I have decided to to submit to um, watching The Crown, which is very difficult as I am a Republican and <laughs> I'm looking I realize that it's extremely well made. Um, I still struggle to care about these people's lives, to tell you the truth, but I am watching it in between. I tend to watch... I so it's not do, making you a sympathetic monarchist no, in, the, in the process? No, 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 I mean, I also... <laughs> but it is extraordinarily well done, extraordinarily well acted and scripted, and I tend to watch it while ironing. Um, but I am, at the moment, what am I reading? I'm halfway through... Um, uh, Don Quixote. So I've, I've, years and years and years ago, I decided that I was going to read the hundred, like the hundred greatest novels of all time. I've got nine to go. They're all, and yeah, Boel, and they're all very long and very Show difficult. Off. They're all, and, look, and they take, take me a very, very, very long time. And I've left the nine hardest ones at the end, you know, the Proust and oh, Ulysses. It's not good. So, anyway, so I mean, it'll probably take me another 10 years to finish that. So I'm halfway through Don Quixote, which is actually very entertaining when I do get to read it. Hey, um, this, is, this is a strange question to ask a demographer, although it's also a really good question to ask a demographer. I ask all my guests, what trends are you watching, which is kind of your day job rather than just the ancillary to your question. But outside of what we've talked about, what is it? I'm interested. My The trend that I'm really watching is, is TikTok going to be destroyed by old people in the way that Facebook <laughs> was destroyed by old people? <laughs> That's why the revenge knows no bounds, does it? That's exactly right. I'm always fascinated to see how... Um, yeah, how how um, things that cool young people do get destroyed by old people. Um, so that's like, that's always fascinating to see um, people my age going. I'm going on TikTok, and I'm like, why <laughs> would you do that? Just, um. <laughs> I, I think we might have to have you back if you if you'll be so kind, and maybe in a year's time to record and answer some of those questions. Mate, here's here's the second last one. What advice would you give someone who was like you, sitting next to Rebecca Huntley at a dinner, and saying, you know what, my career in demography started when I sat next to Rebecca Huntley, just as you sat next to Hugh McHale all those years ago. What advice would you give? someone who's looking for a career in demography or in social research? Uh, what would I do? Well, the first thing I'd ask them is, you know, how how much do you like other people and how curious are you? Um, first of all, how much do you like other people? You can't really do this job and be a cynic about human nature. You need to be sceptical, but, but you have to like people because your whole life will be understanding them. Um, I always ask people, uh, and then, you know, uh, that's probably a big part of it, like understanding their kind of natural sense of engagement and curiosity in the world around them, which includes an engagement and curiosity in themselves. And I'd be interested in what they read when they're not having to read stuff for work. Those are some of the questions I'd definitely <laughs> ask. Fascinating. I like it. Mate, our very last question is my favourite. I'm an optimist by nature. I have a sense you might be too, at least based on the last, answer your last question. So what, Rebecca Huntley, are you optimistic about? I am optimistic about, this is probably a bit of a betrayal of my, um, of my political allegiances, I'm, I'm optimistic <laughs> about um, the next generation ability to put the kinds of, put things like climate change, at, at not just say they care about it, but actually care about it. Their 
showing extraordinary leadership across the around the world as students and citizens and workers. I mean, one of the things I constantly hear from corporate Australia is that it's it's the it's it's young workers saying to their bosses and people at HR, "What are you doing around climate?" So their ability to create a, a diverse, powerful grassroots movement um, to make their lives better, but also our lives better. I'm pretty optimistic about that. I like it. The kids are all right after all. We like the that. The kids are all right. <laughs> Rebecca Huntley, thank you for being so kind and so generous with your time. I have learned a stack and I can't wait. Maybe I'll try and sh- twist your arm to chat again, maybe in 12 months' time, and just see what's changed since then. But you've been very kind. Rebecca Huntley, thank you for joining us for The Good Oil. Thank you so much. This podcast is hosted by me, Scott Phillips. It's produced excellently by Beth Gibson and audio imaged brilliantly by Link Kelly. Listener.